Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. someone's nearing the end of their life on earth, they usually have a few uh, simple proverbial words to share with their loved ones. Uh, Just before he passed away with cancer, I remember my dad giving me some proverbial advice. Uh, One was, don't live to work, work to live. Good advice, right? Uh, He also told me, never stop serving the Lord. Those, those final words of His, just a couple of them, are very precious words to me. And I'm sure that you guys can think of words like that as well. But no final words, however, are so precious, I think, as those final words that were spoken by Jesus at the cross, at the end of His earthly life. They're the final words of His earthly life. And uh, the cross... Of Jesus is what Lewis Sperry Chafer called one of the most stupendous events in all of world history. This is how you should think about it. This is one of the biggest events in the history of the world, and it always will be. Because this is what someone said, I mean, the, the apex of redemptive history This is where our sins were paid for. The gospel records uh, record Jesus speaking seven utterances as he hung on the cross in those final hours. And And it's these seven sayings or utterances that I want to study in depth this Easter, uh, both in depth and in order. Uh, This is a study that I've considered doing for the past few years. I thought about doing this my first Easter here, so it's been on my mind for a while, and uh, I I think this is is the year for it. And uh, I should let you know, too, that there is a book I'm going to be using in correlation with this series um, called The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross. I've had this book in my uh, collections for a long time, but I'm really just starting to open it. So... uh, Again, since my first year here, but uh, it's by Arthur Pink. He's an old preacher and theologian who passed on to be with the Lord back in 1952. So, but one of the the questions we should ask is why why study this, right? Why study these last seven sayings of Christ's earthly life on the cross? And and the reason that I want to put forth for us and to have in our minds as we go through this short series is that discipleship flows out of Christology, and Christology is just the study of the person and the work of Christ. Uh, By studying the person and the work of Christ, we understand who He is, we understand what He's done. That, in turn, will influence us as His disciples. It helps us understand what discipleship looks like as we study Christ, right? We want to become more like Him. We want to understand what He's done. It helps us to live and to operate 
And so in studying these seven last words of his life on the cross, we don't want to just know more facts about what happened on the cross. Uh, that's not why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John wrote these last sayings down. Uh, they didn't write them down for us just to know more. In fact, you're going to see that each of these writers only writ, wrote down the utterances of Jesus that supported their purpose in writing. It's like, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't all record the seven sayings. Each gospel writer picked out the seven sayings that supported their authorial intent, what we, what we, what we call their authorial intent. That's their, the intent of the author, their purpose in writing. In other words, so that when the gospel writers wrote what they did, they didn't just write everything they knew that happened, as some historian might. Well, like, I'm, I'm a historian, so I'm going to write down everything I know about what happened in this day. They didn't do that. They're, they're writing intentional information. They wrote history, but it, it, it's intentionally arranged as a narrative. So it's historical, but it's a narrative genre that tells a story that's designed to influence us theologically. Does that make sense? It's a lot to think through. So they're helping us theologically understand who Christ is through the narrative and so that we can learn to walk with him even more. They're trying to, the original writers are trying to do something in us concerning discipleship or evangelism. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mainly focus on discipleship, and John is sometimes called the evangelist. So it's amazing. I think you guys are going to be blown away by how uh, by studying these seven sayings in light of their context, in light of the author's original intent. So um, our understanding, our discipleship, again, flows out of our understanding of who Jesus is and what God has done through him. For example, uh, Jesus is described as going ahead of the disciples. He walks ahead of the disciples. He goes ahead of the disciples. And, you know, that's not just this, this plain... Uh, matter-of-fact statement. Because you turn to, for example, Second Peter, and Peter will use this to, to, to refer to how Jesus suffered. He went ahead of us. Now we follow behind him. He's not just saying, well, Jesus walked in front of the disciples. No, he's saying he went ahead of us in the sense that he went through suffering. We, too, are going to go through suffering. So our d- discipleship flows out of Christology. What he, who he is and what he has done. And so his words on the cross are going to teach us a lot about how to follow him. And today we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to note, first off, Luke's authorial intent. It's different from Mark. It's different from Matthew. It's different from John, where we're going to go in, in the, the rest of our Easter series. Luke, we know, is writing to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus. Uh, who is likely a Roman official of some kind and a recent Gentile convert to Christianity. And uh, because God's program has been long been predominantly Jewish, this was probably be, be around 8060 when Luke writes, but uh, you know, it's, uh, God's program has been predominantly Jewish, and so uh, he's wanting to know more now about his place in God's program as a Gentile, you have to think that the church is only 30 30 years old at this point, this Christian movement, and so he wants to know more. He didn't have the book of Acts, right? Theophilus couldn't just open up the book of Acts and see how how 
the outline of how, you know, Jesus was born and he paid for sins and eventually it became this Gentile Christian church movement and the Jews became hardened. He couldn't, he didn't have all that information. So Theophilus is here, he believes in Jesus, but he wants to know, according to Luke 1, 4, the exact truth about the things that he's heard, the things that he's been taught. And that's kind of the feel of this book. Theophilus wants to know what God has done to bring this about, this great Gentile salvation. He wants to know how to order his life, how his life lines up with God's program. And I hope that's your prayer as well, right? You want to know how you can be part of God's program, God's salvation project that he's got going on, his redemptive plan. Uh, so in the beginning, this is really neat, guys. This is my favorite part of the whole message, probably. Um, this background work is critical, okay? In the beginning of Luke, in the Christmas story that we read every Christmas, in chapter 1, remember Mary is exalting the Lord who allows her to give birth to the promised Messiah, her God and Savior, right? In chapter 2, there's a righteous and devout man, named Simeon, and he's blessing God for letting him hold the newborn Savior in his arms. Remember that? Oh, I can finally, my soul can depart in peace because I've seen the promised Messiah. I've held the Messiah in my arms, eight days old. He says, this is what he says. He quotes Isaiah. Pick, that, pick up on that. He quotes Isaiah saying that my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. Take note of that. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Okay, so um, with the Christian church being fairly new, someone, especially a Jew, would have read that and would have been like, wait, What? A light of revelation to the Gentiles? Those dirty, rotten Gentiles? How is he going to be a light to the Gentiles? It doesn't make any sense yet. So how is he going to be a light? Well, what you see from the beginning of Luke to the end of Acts, remember that was in Luke 2, but by the time you get to the end of Acts, you see exactly how that plays out, right? How Jesus became a light, not only to the Gentiles, but to the world. He's our light, right? So that's the intent of Luke. God's purpose is to advance the gospel to all peoples or all men. And you might be thinking, well, that sounds very similar to our study in the book of Acts, advancing the gospel, right? Well, remember that Luke and Acts, those separate books in your Bible are actually just two volumes in one, of one continuous story. That's, that's all it is. I think if Luke could have, he would have wrote them on the same piece of papyrus, but instead he writes them on two 35-foot-long pieces of papyrus. That was as long as you could get. And it's very amazing the similarities between these two, um, which we'll talk more about uh, probably when we get back to the book of Acts. But they're both equal in length and the number of words. Um, it's pretty amazing. I mean, Luke ends with Jesus' trials, um, before you know, the Jews in Rome, how does Acts end? Paul's in Rome, right? So you watch this whole shift takes place between uh, God's program, predominantly Jewish, to predominantly uh, Gentile. 
Um, think about this. Think, imagine how, with Luke 2 in your mind, that Jesus is a light to the Gentiles, imagine how Theophilus would have responded, this Roman official. Imagine how he would have responded to last week's message about how a Roman official named Sergius got saved and he came to the light while the Jew, Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer, was darkened. Remember, he was blinded by Paul. Do you see the, the, the central theme in there? That's pretty amazing. The Gentile receives the light, and the Jew was then darkened. Before we finish Acts chapter 13 in a couple weeks, Paul turns to the Gentiles. It literally says, we're turning to the Gentiles, and he quotes, guess who? Isaiah. In Acts chapter 13, he says, For the so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Luke has this one central purpose that is demonstrating uh, God's purpose of bringing salvation to all men. That's the big picture that I want to outline for you um, from, the, from Luke and Acts. That's the big picture. And that's going to help us as we dive into these final words of Jesus on the cross. Um, uh, the theme verse for the book of Luke is most people consider Luke 19.10 to be the theme verse. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save uh, that which was lost. And so with that purpose in mind, let's go ahead and read Luke 23.32 through uh, 38. And we're going to pick it up in verse 32 as a man named Simon of Cyrene is helping Jesus carry his cross. Um, That's basically what happened last. Two others, he's, he's being crucified. Two others also who were criminals uh, were being led away to be put to death with him. So he's being led with these other two criminals. But when they came to the place called the skull, where they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So he addresses the Father, forgiveness, and you see the ignorance. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if this is Christ, the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him Sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. And so the first thing we see here is this word of forgiveness from Jesus in verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And it's amazing to think of what Jesus has been through and what he's going through as he utters these words. I mean, he has been uh, arrested, he's been sold out, he's been abandoned by his, his disciples, he's been mocked, he has been spit on, he's, he's had a crown of thorns jammed into his, his, his head, into the skin of his head, he's, he's been blindfolded and beaten with fists and with a rod, he's been uh, before, you know, illegal and unjust trials. He's been scourged so severely with a flagrum whip, this whip that had bits of, of bone and, and metal in it probably, uh, that this, this whip was so 
awful that his insides are probably exposed. I mean, it tore the flesh open. A lot of people uh, apparently died from the scourging with this whip alone because of the sheer amount of blood loss. And that would explain why he needs someone to help him carry his cross. He's probably entering hypovolemic shock. He's lost so much blood, he's just exhausted. And they're still not satisfied. I mean, he's, he's unrecognizable at this point as a man and who he was. And, and they still say, crucify him, crucify him. Like, I mean, Pilate tried to please the crowds with this scourging because he can't find anything wrong with Jesus. He's, he says, this guy's innocent. I, you know, I wash my hands of it, but they're not satisfied. They want him dead. And so Pilate, pleasing the crowd, lets it happen. And uh, Jesus, again, he's so exhausted. There's this man named Simon who helps, helps him carry his crossbeam. Uh, this is, again, think about this. This is a detail supporting his authorial intent, his, the, his intention as an author. Because what we know about Simon, he's from Cyrene. He's likely dark-skinned. And that demonstrates that a Gentile was involved in carrying Jesus' cross. Now think about how that might speak to someone like Theophilus, who's wondering if he can follow Jesus too. This is saying, yes, a Gentile can pick up his cross and follow Jesus daily. That's, that's a, I think that's what's being communicated here. It shows Gentiles like Theophilus can follow Jesus. Last week, remember, we, and, and we've seen this throughout the book of Acts, Luke wrote that too, uh, the diversity of the church leadership at Antioch. We saw that last week, right? There's a reason that Luke's emphasizing uh, all of these different people from all around the world coming on into the Christian movement. It's, it's showing that God wants all men involved, and uh, he wants to save all men. But at this point, though, Jesus has been crucified. He has had nails driven into his hands and his feet, and uh, um, it's likely that he actually had the nail go through his ankle bone on the sides of the cross, right? You'd have to push yourself up on those nails to breathe. And I say that because uh, they've uncovered bones with ankle bones with the nail driven through them from the side. But uh, that's the condition he's in. And it's amazing that rather than be focused on himself, rather than soaking in self-pity or pronouncing curses on his crucifiers, Jesus is actually focused on them, like praying for them. Can you imagine that? You're undergoing this kind of unjust treatment and you're praying for them. Like this is, He's interceding for them before the Father. Father, forgive them. And this is prophetic uh, of Christ to do. He knows exactly what he's doing when he says this. Isaiah 53 is... Uh, one of the four servant songs of Isaiah that talk about the Messiah when he comes, he's not just going to rule and reign, he's going to have to first come and suffer and, and die. It describes in detail that the Messiah that the Jews were expecting, the king, the prince, he would come and suffer. And obviously, a lot of them mystic, because what are they saying? They're saying, if you really are the Messiah, take yourself off the cross, right? Save yourself. Right? So they, they missed it. They didn't understand that this is exactly what Isaiah prophesied was going to happen to him, that he was going to be crucified. And uh, Daniel 26 prophesied it 
too, he prophesied actually the day of his royal entry, the, the day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem. This is what uh, Daniel said, the Messiah Prince is going to enter Jerusalem on, on this exact day, and then he's going to be cut off and have nothing. He's not going to inherit anything. Right? So that's talking about his first coming. Okay? Um, but it's amazing that he's fulfilling these prophecies uh, that the king, the Messiah, would be crucified. Anyway, let's just read a few verses from Isaiah. The Lord desired to crush him. The Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I underlined some things there uh, on the slide. He was counted with wrongdoers. He bore the sin of many and he interceded for the transgressors. That's very relevant for our passage in Luke. Um, Jesus is that prophesied intercessor. And he's an intercessor in more than one way. Um, but uh, one of the things I want us to catch the vision of is that Jesus' crucifixion is not an accident. It is not an accident. This is something that Isaiah prophesied over 500 years ago in great detail, and he even planned it, the Bible says, before the creation of the world. The lamb was slain from before the creation of the world. So that tells you that when God had this in mind, when he actually created the sheep. <laughs> He didn't create the sheep and say, well, then my servant's going to be like that sheep. No, he said, this is my servant. I'm going to create an animal to reflect my servant, the sheep. Right? So I, I think about that a lot. Uh, uh, Jesus could have also taken himself off the cross, couldn't he? That's what they said. Take yourself off the cross. Well, he didn't. He, he also could have called down legions of angels, he said, at his arrest. But he didn't. Why? Because he's intentionally laying down his life for us. He's letting the prophecies come to fruition. That's what he's doing. Um, he's our intercessor as well in, in two ways. I want you to think of him as an intercessor. As a priest and then as a guilt offering, as an offering for sin, as an actual sacrifice. The priest offered sacrifices, but Jesus is interceding for us as a priest and as a sacrifice. Priests in the Old Testament, they interceded on behalf of who? On behalf of men before God. They were the, the intermediaries. And uh, Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, becomes the perfect high priest of heaven that we need. Because he's both God and he's both man, but he's never sinned like man, so he can intercede for man on, behalf, on, God's behalf, or on man's behalf before God. Okay, so he proved himself, I think, to be this quintessential intercessor for sinners by, by the way he's, he's both interceding before the Father in this prayer, right? So he's, he's praying like a high priest before the Father on behalf of sinners, and at the same time, he's offering himself as a sacrifice for sins. 
It's, it's amazing that the depth of the significance of what is going on is, is so profound and it's almost difficult to communicate. It's so deep. I mean, think of, it gets even more, it's even deeper than this. The sin offering satisfies ignorant sin. They know not what they do. When you think of ignorance, um, think of, what do you think of? Some of you guys are really acquainted with the Old Testament. Uh, You think of Gentiles. Gentiles are ignorant. They don't know God. They don't have the law. This shows us Jesus is willing to forgive even the ignorant, sinful Gentiles who have lived much of their lives without God. Think of how that would have encouraged Mr. Gentile Theophilus, Mr. Ignorant, for so long. Can God forgive even my ignorant sins that I'm not even aware of? I'm such a sinner that I I sin all the time, I don't even know about it, right? Sometimes. Can God forgive those? Yeah, absolutely. Look, at a second thing it should remind us of is that even the Jews had to offer offerings for sins of ignorance. Sins that they didn't even know they committed, you know, <laughs> in a sense. David prayed, Lord, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. And so they would actually offer rams or bulls, bulls without blemish. They didn't have any defect, and that was typifying Christ, who would be perfect and innocent, Right? So they would offer these rams or bulls to cover their ignorant sins. You can read about that in Leviticus 4 and 5 and Numbers 15. And so even if we have the law and we're trying to be spiritually attuned in our walk with God, guys, we're so sinful that we will sin without even realizing it sometimes. Something, too, that can really mess with you is, is, is with your conscience is that uh, if you don't understand that even like your ignorant sins are covered in Christ, uh, that'll really mess with your conscience, right? That's how people end up in, uh, you know, confession booths in the really traditional churches, like trying to confess every thought and every deed. And it's like, Lord, sometimes I just want to pray like David, Lord, forgive me of all my hidden faults that I don't even know about. You know, like my motives, my, some of my thoughts that I, did, I can't control. It's like, Lord, these are, Lord, forgive me of all of these, right? And if you don't understand that Jesus has paid for all of those, every sin, then, boy, you're really going to have a messed up conscience because uh, you're not going to have that, that freedom in Christ that he wants us to have, uh, that peace, that contentment, knowing that Jesus has paid for it all. And so, anyway, what Jesus is doing by saying this is that the Old Testament sacrifices... These were just a shadow of himself, the Lamb of God who can fully forgive our sins. See, even Hebrews talked, Hebrews 9 talks about this. He's the sacrifice who can make a worshiper perfect in conscience. Conscience. Okay, he, he, can, he, can, he, he accomplished for us, he obtained for us eternal redemption. And like the Jew in the Old Testament under the law, he'd offer that sacrifice. And he'd go sin again some more, right? And he'd have to go back and he'd have to offer another sacrifice and another sacrifice. Jesus has come once for all and offered himself so that, to perfect us in conscience so we don't have to live like that anymore. We don't have to keep, you know, we, we know Jesus has obtained eternal redemption for us. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession 
for them. Isn't that amazing? He's fulfilling the sins of ignorance sacrifice. Um, and that's uh, one of man's greatest needs. I don't think it should be any shock that forgiveness comes out of uh, Christ's mouth or this willingness to forgive comes up in his words on the cross because that's what the cross is all about. It's about forgiveness and that's man's greatest need. That's what he's accomplishing on the cross in this moment. Taking all the, the sins of the world upon himself so that whoever believes in him won't perish, but they'll have everlasting life. All who believe in him can be justified from all things from which they couldn't be justified by in the law, by keeping the law. And guys, that's, that's the reason Luke is adding all of these horrific details <laughs> about what's going on with his, his arrest and scourging and all these things and why he's crucified between two criminals. Right? Crucifixion was like the worst form of punishment ever and he's he's taking it himself he that's that's his expression of saying that he's willing to forgive even the most vile of sinners the ones who deserve crucifixion it's amazing but let's let's ask how does this understanding of christ and what he's done affect discipleship remember that's our question what does this tell us about discipleship as disciples of jesus uh, again, he has went ahead of us. If we're living out our faith, the Bible says if we seek to live godly in Christ Jesus, we ourselves are going to be persecuted, right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna encounter injustice. We're going we're gonna to be an offense to the world, and it's going to try and persecute us. We're going to suffer uh, to varying degrees. And he is not, Jesus our example is not uttering threats, is he, to these people who are, who are persecuting him. He is actually praying for his enemies, and that's exactly what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He's living out his teaching, and his, his praying for them speaks of what I think is the main discipleship principle, that we need to be, have, maintain a willingness to forgive uh, we, we maintain a willingness to forgive our enemies, our, those who uh, persecute us. Uh, it's important to understand, though, as Arthur Pink did, that uh, he did not personally forgive them, did he, in this moment? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus did not actually forgive them. What would they have to do to be forgiven of their sins? They would have to trust in him as their savior, right? So there's condition there. So he didn't personally forgive them at this moment. He's expressing his desire to forgive them. Their forgiveness is going to be based upon or conditioned upon their repentance. If they repent, if they change their mind about Jesus and instead of mocking him, they trust in him, he'll forgive them, right? This is, here's how we respond to offenses. Number one, we're going to be patient with them. We're going to be patient with them because we understand that we're ignorant sinners too, that we sin and we don't even know it sometimes. That's how ingrained the sin nature is in us. So we're going to be patient with them. Um, we're, going to, we're going to pray for them. We are going to continue to love them. Christ loved us so much he died for us, even while we were sinners, ignorant sinners. Uh, we're going to express our willingness to forgive. We're going to not take our own vengeance. Romans says, don't take your own vengeance. Leave room for the wrath of God. 
And we don't get malicious. We don't take our own wrath out on somebody. And then we, lastly, we entrust ourselves to the just to judge. That's what 2 Peter 2 says. That's what Jesus did. That's what we should do. We, despite ill treatment, despite unjust treatment, we can be content and unreservedly committed to God and his, doing his will, knowing that one day we will be fully and clearly vindicated. I think that's it. I think that's the way to respond to offenses. That's biblical forgiveness. But secondly, let's go ahead and look at uh, the word of salvation. This is much shorter because we've done a lot of the background work. And uh, it starts in verse, uh, it's, it's in verse 43. Let's read 39 through 43. Uh, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed are, are and, and we indeed are suffering justly? For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And so here we've seen, the, we've seen the word of forgiveness, now we see the word of salvation, his second utterance. Today he'll be with me in paradise. And again, this, this whole, uh, whole portion should remind us of Isaiah 53 again. Uh, because it was there where it said, though innocent Jesus was going to be numbered with, the transgressors, and he's, he's right there in the midst of transgressors, sinners. Sinless, the sinless one dies for sinners as a sinner in the midst of sinners. That tells us so much about who Jesus is and what he's like. You know, how he has, he's, Philippians says he's emptied himself of his own glory to come and die for us, even to die on a cross for us. Okay, he's, he's died the worst form of punishment between criminals, taking the place of even the worst of sinners. And the reason he does it is right there, isn't it? In verse 43, so that sinners like the criminal and sinners like us can be with him in paradise. So we can be with him in paradise. One of the things I'm thrilled to talk about is paradise. And uh, that's just one of the most... Powerful and driving, motivating thoughts in my life. It has become that. Paradise. Not because I always want to go on vacation to Hawaii or Oahu or wherever. Maybe. Not that that's on my mind. You know. But, uh, especially in February. But, uh, <laughs> um, that, seriously, paradise has become one of the, the big driving thoughts in my life that I cannot escape anymore. It's, it's one of the, the big things in my life. I was just showing my wife a picture the other day of this, this painting I want to put in my office, or this picture. It has three of my favorite things in it. It's got emerald waters. Kind of like, it reminds you of the Mediterranean or something like that. But emerald, emerald's my favorite color. It reminds me of the emerald rainbow around God's throne. It's been my favorite color for years. There's an emerald rainbow. It speaks of God's peace. Um... 
That's the rainbow around God's throne before the tribulation in Revelation chapter 4. It says, yeah, tribulation's coming, hardships are coming, but there's a rainbow on its way. There's peace coming. That's like, just like our lives, right? Sometimes it's hard, but you know what? Paradise is coming. Uh, this, this painting that I want to hang up in my office has a sunset in it. And it's one of my favorite aspects of creation. It just makes me worship. I love God's artwork in the sky every evening. It's amazing. And then it's got these palm trees in it. And you've, you guys have been with us, right? We've studied Psalm 92. We've seen some things about what the Bible says about palm trees. What are they? They're evergreen, aren't they? Evergreen. Kind of like a pine tree. Yeah, pine tree is evergreen throughout the winter. Palm trees are evergreen in the desert, even. So that speaks to me very powerfully about how I should be an evergreen palm tree that can thrive even in a, a spiritual desert, even when life feels like a desert. I can, I can be that evergreen palm tree because I know, Psalm 92, that God is in control. I know that, that my, my fate my life rests in the hands of the eternal one who's really in control. So, yeah, it speaks powerfully about many biblical truths. And the last one is, is, is a paradise. When you think of a palm tree, sometimes you just think of paradise. And that's, that's what Jesus says uh, where he's going to be as soon as he dies. I'm going to take you with me. To be in paradise. You know, we were, guys, we were created. I don't know if you've you thought about this much, but we were created for paradise. To live with God in an Edenic paradise. Isn't that what the Garden of Eden was? It was paradise, guys. And, and that was lost in Genesis chapter 3 with sin entering the picture. All of creation has suffered with us. Making life with thorns very difficult. If you wonder why Jesus is wearing thorns on his head, it's because thorns entered the picture in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the picture. So the thorns come back up as Jesus is paying for sins. He's taking the thorns that we deserve. Okay? Uh, creation is, is suffering the curse of sin just like we are. And the good news is that Jesus is going to restore paradise someday. He's going to lift the curse on creation. We're going to have resurrected bodies, and heaven's going to be paradise. The earth at Jesus' return is going to be paradise. The deserts are going to flourish. Uh, the Arabah, the, the, the area of Sodom and Gomorrah and the Dead Sea, it's going to flourish. It's going to come back to life. It's not going to be the Dead Sea anymore. It's going to be the living sea. And then the, the new heaven, the new earth, it's, it's paradise. It's going to be amazing. Aren't you guys excited for that? You guys tired of the dirt blowing in your face for four days straight? <laughs> right? Uh, guys, paradise is coming, but you know what really makes it paradise? You know what makes paradise paradise? Jesus' presence. The presence of God. Jesus is there. It's going to be awesome living in a world where the curse is lifted, where the curse is even removed. But the best thing is that we're going to be in the full expression of his presence. And we're going to see his face, Revelation 22.4 says. We will see his face. We will behold it. We're going to be right there with him. And Paul said in Philippians 1.23, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what we look forward to. If you want heaven but you don't want the Lord, you're not really going to want heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's no such thing as 
You know, death is not the end and there's no such thing as soul sleep, right? Jesus told that criminal that that day he was going to be with him in paradise. So as soon as we die, the immaterial part of us, the soul, the spirit, it departs from the material part of us. And it enters paradise with Christ if we've trusted in him as our savior. And uh, let's, let's take note that this criminal, he was an outcast. He would, this guy, think about this. There's a reason he said, remember me. Because this guy is an outcast. And he's going to be tossed over the wall into a mass burial grave where you do not get a tombstone because you don't deserve to be remembered. That's where this guy's going to end up. A mass burial grave with no tombstone. That's why he says, remember me. Remember me, Jesus. It's his way of saying, I don't want this to be the end. I want to be remembered. I want to be forgiven. I want eternal life. I want a tombstone <laughs> for eternity. And, and Jesus outdoes all of his expectations, doesn't he? And he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I'll remember you today, friend. Isn't that great? Guys, there's so many people in, in Luke and the book of Acts that are all outcasts that Jesus seeks and saves. In this chapter alone, look at this. There are, there's the outcast criminal who's saved. There's Simon of Cyrene. I think he, he's, he comes up again in the book of Acts. I think he gets saved. There's a Roman centurion who, oh, what, what, what verse is that in? Verse 47. The centurion sees how Jesus dies and he says, this certainly this man was innocent. This is the son of God. There's a bunch of women mentioned uh, several times. There's a prominent and wealthy Jew in verse 50 named Joseph. In the rest of Luke, Jesus is, is, is seeking and saving prostitutes, tax collectors. In Acts, it goes on to the Samaritans and to the, the Gentiles and even enemies like Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. This all tells us that Jesus, so Luke's recording these details about these people so that we understand Jesus came to die for all men. It's amazing, isn't it? The Bible is just incredible. The more you study it, the more you, you should just be blown away by it. I mean, that's why we seek to share Jesus with all, because Jesus died for all men. He died for all, but let's remember, all must decide. We've got to make up our minds about who Jesus is and what he's done. Is he your savior? Because he only invited one of these criminals to spend eternity with him. He only invited one of these criminals to enjoy paradise with him. Both of them knew they were sinners. Both of them knew they, you know, they deserved condemnation for their sin. But only one criminal cried out to him to be saved. And if you're here today and you've never done that, maybe today is the day where you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I want to accept what you've done for me on that cross and I want to be remembered. I want to have an eternity with you in paradise. And he'll outdo your expectations. He won't only save you, he'll give you his Holy Spirit and he will give you an eternity, a future glory and 
You know, that, that, that criminal, he only wanted to be remembered in Christ's future kingdom on earth, I think. But Christ says, look, you're going to enjoy paradise with me today. It starts today. It's amazing. Most people assume this thief was converted on that cross that day where he hung. If it wasn't that day, it was very recently, which it tells us this guy, this guy had no opportunity for good works. He had no opportunity to be baptized. He couldn't do any religious works. He couldn't do any good deeds. He, you know, he couldn't turn over a new leaf in his life or commit to live a better life. He's helpless. His hands and feet are tied. He can't do any religious stuff. And that's exactly what Luke wants us to see. This man was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Isn't that great? The way to paradise is not by what we do, but it's by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. That's the place of forgiveness. Thank you.